We are going to go to John. We're continuing in the book of John, and we're talking about the signs that are evident in the book of John. And uh, before we begin, let's pray and just ask the Lord's blessing on the service, and then also um, just a reminder to pray for even uh, those who are meeting today, tomorrow, this time, and um, in different places around the world. So shall we pray, pray together? Heavenly Father, Thank you for the privilege we have to come together. Thank you that uh, you are the object of our faith. You are worthy. You are trustworthy. You are faithful. And Father, we pray for those who are meeting around the world, those who have already met. Pray that you would encourage those believers who have to hide or, or are facing restrictions. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them and help them. And Lord, we thank you for those missionaries. Thank you for others who are faithfully preaching your word. Father, we pray this morning that you would help us as we come before you, that we would understand it, that we would be able to live out the promises that you give to us, but also understand more, not necessarily just simply of the um, information, but Lord, we pray that the Bible might transform us and help us to live a life that is pleasing in your sight. So we thank you for the word, thank you for the truth that he gives to us, and ask that you would be lifted up. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. As we look at this morning, just uh, in John chapter 4, verses uh, 43 through 54, the third sign of John, healing of a nobleman's son. And I know that some, some of your Bibles may have a little different numbering. It actually really doesn't matter, but I'll explain why I say this is the third. But um, to give you some context, uh, in, in John chapter uh, 4, we see here the second sign, remember, had taken place as we talked about last week in Jerusalem, with Jesus cleansing the temple and instructing uh, the Jews on the subject of true worship. To understand, he continues with the theme in chapter 4, and in chapter 4 we have the meeting with the Samaritan woman, and uh, against the Jewish custom, he speaks to this Samaritan woman of loose morals and also spends extra days with the Samaritans, telling them about himself and then we arrive here at the third sign. And our context is that Jesus has completed the successful ministry in Samaria. And he's returning back to the area of Galilee. And remember, this was a shock to his disciples. First of all, they couldn't believe that he was speaking with this woman, or let alone wanted to go through Samaria. But because oftentimes they went around Samaria. But he returns from Jerusalem through Samaria to the area of Galilee. And so we arrive at verse, as we see here, 43. It says, Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. And then in verse, uh, allow me to read, we'll read through this uh, text first. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. 
Then he inquired of them the hour when he had got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. So we have here in verse, going back to verse 44. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. See, this is referring to the contrast as we view of the acceptance from the people of Galilee, Judea, as Messiah and those from Samaria. Because really, those in Samaria understood who he was and they wanted to learn more and hear about him. And this is probably said tongue-in-cheek or a little sarcastically because at verse 45, the next verse, it says, the Galileans received him having seen all at the feast. See, the problem here is that people view Jesus kind of as a celebrity. I don't know if you've ever met famous people, but celebrity, we often like to talk about, man, I saw someone famous or we saw this person or that person. And those who had traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover and the week-long feast, remember they went down to Jerusalem, went up to Jerusalem because elevation and where it's at. Even though it's south, they would say it is up. Um, the Bible uses that. So don't get confused. It's not talking about directionally. It's talking about elevationally. So even though north, they go south to Jerusalem, but they go up. And we see here is that um, those individuals had been down there, then they spent the week for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then they returned home, and they probably, the Jewish individuals, arrived back at their homes before Jesus because he had stopped and had spent time with the Samaritans. And so as we see here, Jesus returns, and they receive him not as the Messiah, but as one who has done all these miracles, one who can give them something. And this is big news because if you've ever lived in a rural area, how many have grew up or maybe lived in a rural area? You know, some of the things about living in a rural area, news passes very quickly. You know, whether it be so-so's child or this happened or that happened. So news passes very quickly. So this news, they probably would have said, hey, you should have seen what happened down in Jerusalem at the Passover. Man, Jesus went in there and he cleansed the temple, chased them all out, did all this. And then he stood up to those uh, Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, you know, and then they get back there and then Jesus returns. And so we have in that context... So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen and that conditional, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. And so we see here in verse 46. So if we go ahead on these slides, you'll see a little bit of the map, and so give you that direction. I know it's a little small there, but um, I'll zoom in in a little bit later, but you can kind of see what takes place during that time. But in, in verse 46, um, we have Jesus comes again to Cana of Galilee. And if you remember, Cana of Galilee was where he turned the water into wine. And so we're introduced to this royal official, also called a nobleman, who is probably a Jewish official who worked for King um, Herod Antipas. And so he lived in Capernaum. And so Capernaum is actually... Uh, up on the lake, and we'll, I'll show you in a little bit on that map. But um, as we see here, what happens is his son is deathly ill with a fever, so he comes to Cana and searches out Jesus. 
And in verse 48, Jesus says to him, it's interesting because if you read verse 48, we see two things going on. It says, Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll be, you will by no means believe. So it's interesting because here, picture Jesus is, this man comes to him, and there's probably a surrounding of people because it's a gaggle of people. It's an, almost what I would call like an entourage. What is an entourage? Some of you younger people might know, but what is an entourage? Yeah, they're kind of all around, and why do they follow them? Yeah, usually they can get what trickle-down economics, right? Oh, you know, we're going out to eat. Guess what? You know, hey, we're part of the entourage. They follow, usually follow after stars or individuals. Well, these people followed after Jesus and were around because they thought, oh, they might see something. They might get something. So here you have this man who comes from Capernaum, comes to Cana, comes and views Jesus, and he says to him, Jesus, you know, my son is, is sick and ill. Please come. Will you, will you heal him? And then he responds. Jesus said to him, which is interesting, he probably turns to him, him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. So John is there recording this, and he, isn't, he uses the plural of that, unless you people, you all. That's where sometimes the King James, you know, um, uses that, but you all, talking about you all, all of you see, you will not believe. So while he's, he's directing it, his response to this man from Capernaum, this official, he's not really talking to them. He's talking to all the people around him. So think about that. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will, you will by no means believe. Because they were expecting a miracle or something to happen, or, hey, go there, and you know, we, we'll all go with you. We'll go down, and you, you heal that man. And the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. See, what we have here is a contrast with the response of the people. If you go back and look at John, go a couple pages, John chapter 2, 23 to 25. If we remember, what was the purpose of these signs? John chapter 2, verse 23 and 25. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did it did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, all mankind, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in them. What he's saying there, he's not, you know, they didn't believe it, maybe follow old Messiah, but they were looking for the works. They were looking at what they could get. Even in John 2, 11, it says, This beginning of signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciple believed in him. See, as he was doing these signs, the purpose was not simply just to heal, just to, for people to follow him. It was to manifest the glory of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, God's earthly representative in Jesus. Many of these people grew up with him. They saw him as just, oh, the child of Mary, the child of Joseph. Joseph, as we mentioned, it was older, probably had passed away. And so they're saying, who is this? person doing this? Did he get some new skill or how's he able to do this? They only saw him humanly. And that's the emphasis as we see through the book of John, understanding that this is not just simply this individual who grew up in the area 
of Galilee. And so, as we continue on in verse 49, the nobleman pleads on behalf of his ill child and urges Jesus to come down to Capernaum to heal his son. He begs and is desperate. If any of you have had someone who's sick or wants or pleads something, you know, young kids are really good at pleading and wanting something. Oh, you know, if you don't give it to me, I'll just die. You know, oh, come on, I'll give up. I won't eat. You know, I'll be good for the rest of my life, right? Trust me, I know some of you are kids, and you probably use these tactics. Don't worry. Come on, if you buy me this bike, if you buy me that um, electronic system, if you get me a car, you know, I'll do anything. You know, I'll, I'll love you forever, and I'll, I'll do this. And we all know that lasts for about one day. But this nobleman pleads, and on behalf of his son, he knows that he's sick. And so he begs and is desperate. You have to remember, if you go to the next slide, you'll see the map. And it's 26 and a half miles between Cana, where they were at, and Capernaum, over to the coast. So you see the little red circles in there? I don't know if you can see it very well. But Cana is in the middle, and to the uh, little bit of the north uh, east, you have Capernaum. It's probably about a four days walk, and so it would have been a little bit. And Capernaum was 700 feet below sea level, so they would be going down. You have to remember, they would talk about elevation versus direction. And so uh, what we have here, Jesus does not choose to satisfy the desires of the Jewish entourage. And instead of going there, Jesus speaks his reply. Because they would all wanted to go down and say, hey, let's go. We'll go with you. We want to see you do something great, some miracle, some sign. And that's why he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Instead, Jesus responds and says, go your way, your son lives. So interesting, we see the faith, this individual, this official, this Jewish official, the man in verse uh, 50, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Very simply stated by John. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. See, in verse 50, we have Jesus tells the nobleman to go on his way for his son lives. He is healed. We see it um, in today's society as Jesus healed a man. But we don't know what a nobleman was thinking. See, the official believes the word that Jesus spoke. But this belief in what Jesus could do for him, it may have either been the utterance of a healing or the prophetic word that foretells the future. He must have just said, don't worry, your son will live. Maybe he sees him as a prophet, and guess what? He's going to get better. So as we view that perspective, we don't really know whether he believed him that he performed the miracle or that he would get better because he just simply says, your son will live. And either way, the nobleman accepts it and returns home. But this faith is not salvific faith. It's not faith for salvation. He just simply believed that Jesus would do what he said he would. That's faith. But he doesn't believe that he's the Messiah, that he will return, that he can give eternal life. See, belief in what Jesus says is not the same as believing in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior of the world who forgives personally. It is one thing to believe that Jesus forgives sins, and it's another to place your personal faith in Jesus alone and ask for that forgiveness. Because in the world today, we can see that contrast. We can see um, Jesus... And then what people perceive. So if you go to the next slide, you're going to see on here, belief must not only be what Jesus can do for you. Because sometimes 
that's what we have, the selfish attitude of, I'll believe in Jesus if he does something for me. See, and here's what happens is what people see Jesus as. You know, you can see it in music, you can see it in others. Jesus is a miracle worker. You know, he answers prayers. Jesus is a healer. He's a provider. He's a fixer. He's a protector. Jesus does those things. But if you don't have a personal relationship and just are depending on him or you have a weak faith or you don't, what people want is, hey, give me a miracle. You know, I'm waiting on my miracle. Just that. Jesus, answer all my prayers. Jesus, heal my illness for me and my family. Give me all that I need or want. Solve my problem. Protect me from all bad. We believe that Jesus can do miracles. We believe that he can answer our prayers, that he can heal our illnesses. He can give us what we need. Probably isn't going to give you everything you want. I'm sorry to disappoint you now, but he's not going to give you everything you want, no matter how much money you give, no matter how good a person you are. He could solve all your problems, but that won't always help us. He could protect you from all bad, but then what does that create? Just a spoiled child. See, to understand people view Jesus as that, or, you know, Jesus, give me this. And if that doesn't happen, they say, well, I, I don't believe. And that's the problem because of the weak faith. They only view Jesus as someone who can give them something. This benevolent God who is up there and says, oh, give me some of your blessings. You know, oh, thank you. You know, give me that. Oh, Lord, you know, help me do this. Help me win the lottery. Help me get this car. Help me do this. You know, they just see him as someone who gives them something. But that's not who God is. That's not necessarily his desires. Sometimes God allows and permits us to go through difficult and hard things. We don't like them. I mean, unless you're sadomasochistic, maybe you like to go through hard, difficult, painful things. You know, oh, I enjoy pain. You know, give me more. You know, oh, I enjoy troubles and trials. You know, I love it. You know? But there are things that God allows us to go through, not necessarily for our, um, because he's a mean God. Oh, look, there's so-and-so. You know, look at this. We're going to have these bad things happen to him. Oh, isn't that funny? No, that's how we view God. Maybe he's doing that for that, but that's not how God is. And God isn't one who just, oh, I wasn't paying attention. You know, they stepped in the road and got hit. That isn't God either. Or God who um, isn't paying attention. God permits things to occur to us. Maybe we see it as punishment as well, but, but for a purpose. Sometimes it is for the benefit of others. It's not necessarily for, our, for what we want. We'd want everything good in life, you know. Think about the child, you know. Say you're trying to do something for someone, you know, you bring back some ice cream. Maybe you like ice cream and you're bringing back ice cream for someone and they say, well, I didn't want that flavor. Well, just be glad you got ice cream, right? But sometimes we're like that. We, we want selection. We want our preferences. Well, why didn't you give me that kind? But God, sometimes events in our lives, it's not simply just about you. Maybe it's to be a blessing or benefit to someone else. Maybe it's to teach you to receive some kindness from other people. Especially as Christians. Sometimes Christians, hopefully you like to do things for other people. But oftentimes believers, it's hard for believers to receive a um, benefit from someone else. But we need that spirit of humility. And as we come down to it, understanding here in the slide, the view of what people see Jesus as. See, the problem is, we perceive Jesus from a human perspective. And that's the hard part because Jesus is divine. But here, these 
people from Galilee. They see Jesus. They only saw him, remember, as human. Because this is the boy who grew up in Nazareth. Now he's doing this. Wow, show us a miracle. Come on, do something else for us. You know, pay my rent. Pay my mortgage. Give me all these things. And if you had someone like that, you'd be the same way. You had someone who, who maybe you have an um, individual who is a celebrity, well off, and can pay something. Now, if you guys, if you were going out to eat, you wouldn't be like, oh, you know, I'll pay for mine and you pay for yours. Even when I worked in baseball chapel, there, sometimes the baseball players, there's a certain area, you know, if certain people who made more money, like the, the pitchers or in sports, you know, the quarterback pays for the defensive, they give them gifts because they're the ones who are protecting him. So it's kind of this unwritten laws about, you know, oh, you pay, things like that. But oftentimes, you know, we view God as, oh, God, you're going to take care of this or you pay for this. And, and we don't understand, humanly speaking, what is our responsibility. We just view God as, God, fix this problem. God, remove me from this situation. God, do this. When we have a perspective of understanding God is God, God, what do I need to learn in this situation? God, who do I need to bless or, or, or help me through this? Is there a sin that I need to, you know, forsake? What is the purpose in this trial and this test? Help me to be a quick learner. Really, that's what we should pray. When difficult things come into our life, help us to learn, help us to be a testimony for you. Oftentimes we pray, Lord, let it happen to someone else. They deserve it more. Why me? But understanding is belief must not only be what can Jesus do for you. And that's what happens. In our society, people see Jesus as one thing, but want Jesus to give it to them in order to personally believe. See, Jewish beliefs at that time really reflects modern Christianity. People may believe that Jesus existed, that he even died and rose again, and possibly he offers eternal life. But for most people, unless Jesus gives them something tangible, they view Jesus as irrelevant to their daily lives. When we went out and we're talking to different people, oh, I don't need Jesus. I'm fine on my own. I'm okay. I don't need him. Maybe if someone's sick or maybe if I can't do something, I'll let Jesus come into my life. See, people are often a poor representation of Christianity as well because our perspectives are so self-centered. See, people have short memories and like the Israelites, quickly forget the blessings and the presence that God has provided in the past. People who call themselves Christians do not always have a true relationship with the Messiah. You know, they believe in Jesus as defined by popular culture. We'll follow Jesus as long as it's comfortable, you know, as long as it's okay. But, you know, if I get embarrassed, I don't want to follow Jesus. So this belief is not a personal, and they don't permit Jesus to have any intimacy, or they don't permit the intimacy to come into their lives or personal entrance in their lives to receive the forgiveness of sins. Because for the most part, especially in our Western civilization, we're the 18 inches. They say personal space, 18 inches. It's about from your elbow to your finger. You know, if anyone gets closer to you than that, usually what happens is you back up. Have you ever been, you know, around those people who kind of invade your personal space? You know, they, they like to come and talk to you right here. What often happens, what do you do? You know, it's like you're moving around follow me around. But some people are just naturally close. But some cultures aren't always like that. When we were down in Peru, you know, there's a little micro combis, these little buses. They think about a, a Volkswagen bus small, you know, and they'd fit, we'd fit a ton of people. And there is no personal space. You just learn that. 
But, you know, it's, it's a school bus. Think about a school bus. Okay, school bus fits how many people on a, on a regular school bus? 84 or is it 64? I think the 64 passenger ones. Yeah, the 64 passenger. Well, when I was in Peru, we fit 120 people in one of those things. And I was a driver. But just to give you an idea of personal space, you know, you're going to get bunched up. Oftentimes, we would feel uncomfortable in that situation, Western civilization. Anyway, my whole point is that what often happens is intimacy and personal closeness, letting people know details about our lives. We, they have no understanding, these unbelievers or these people who don't allow Jesus in their life, they don't have any understanding of personal identity and complete acceptance and peace that comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's why often women understand in their spiritual lives are more intimate than men because intimacy scares men. But women understand that and want that and desire that and understand what it means to have a personal relationship with uh, Jesus Christ and, you know, talk about and share. You know, men don't talk about their feelings. Men can get together, you know, talk about nothing at all and have a great time. Women, unless they talk about their feelings, intimate, share things, you know, then they understand. And then they get so confused about men. What did you talk about? Did you find out about that? You know, did you find out about the so-and-so's, um, you know, wife who's pregnant? The guys are like, she was pregnant? You know, oblivious to those details. But oftentimes, understanding that intimacy, they deny Jesus' control of their daily lives, relationships, decisions, and reserve autonomy of their lives for themselves. See, the intimacy of God, understanding is that. So that's why there's still this level, if you will, of superficiality. People claim to be Christians, but don't allow that intimacy. Don't allow Jesus to have true control of their lives. You can say, oh, okay, I go to church, oh, I believe in God, but I'm going to take full control of my own life. And in verse 51 and 52, if you come back to the text, it says, And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Hey, your son lives. Guess what? He got better. The fever went away. So he's headed down, back down on that journey toward Capernaum. And then, interesting, because this official asked, Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the nobleman heads back to Capernaum, meets up with the servants, and they tell him it was the seventh hour. Well, upon receiving the news and recognizing the miraculous sign of Jesus and healing the son at the exact time he was with Jesus, this faith became personal. Because he inquires, he gets the details. And that seventh hour was probably about 1 p.m. in the afternoon. The timing they would, it's a Roman um, time-wise chronology, the first hour was at 6 a.m. And then you would go from there. And so the seventh hour would have been uh, 1 o'clock. So as we see here, he gets the news. But this faith that had been kind of general before, all of a sudden becomes personal. It is a Messiah. And that's why I believe that it was a Jewish official who would have understood the Old Testament, would have understood, guess what, Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah. It is no longer the faith was an act of healing, but this faith was in the person who did the healing. And then he shares the news with his household, and they each place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, where it says here, it says, and he himself believed in his whole household. It makes you think of Acts 16.31. It doesn't mean that the faith that the nobleman had spread upon his whole house, and they all were saved because of his faith. Each person has to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
And so what happens is it says he himself believed and his whole household. So he shared, hey, this is what Jesus is. He was the Messiah. Remember, he would have been down in Jerusalem as well and understood what had taken place at Passover. And guess what? This is God. This is the Messiah, the one who had promised. And he would have understood back even in John, John the Baptist. Behold, here comes the one who takes away the sins of the world, the one whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. So they would have recognized. This was not a sign for all those adoring fans from Galilee who wanted to follow Jesus as a celebrity. These signs were to help people recognize that Jesus was truly God and that he was the Messiah, Yeshua. And in verse 54, when John tells us that it was the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. See here, Judea probably refers to the northern area and refers to the sign as, remember, what was the first sign that Jesus did? Water into wine. Where was that at? Cana. And where is he at again? So truly it was the second sign in there because as he's speaking, and John, um, this is just speculation conjecture, but I believe that he, he was, well, we know from history, he was from that area as well. Some have even said, was that John's wedding? We don't know. But the whole point is, he said, this is the second sign um, Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee, that area. He isn't including down in Jerusalem. So as we look at that area and understanding what takes place. And so John is not categorically numbering them. It's not saying this is the first, this is the second, this is the third, which we like to. We're kind of an organized people and we enjoy those things. But here, he is just geographically saying this is the second one that was done in that area. So these signs are not for benefit of weak believers or even unbelievers. We must remember that Jesus has no obligation to heal Christians. He has no obligation to heal anyone, really, or to protect them. See, many praise God for healing, and they praise Him, but they fail to praise Him when a believer passes and goes to heaven. Sometimes they are lost in their, their whole understanding of, Jesus, why did you allow this to happen? They question Him. So it's important for us to understand that our circumstances must not dictate our spirituality. American Christians are often wrongly assume that our legal, national legal rights as citizens in the United States are God-given and is unbiblically, unbiblical if we do not possess them. What we have in our society and everywhere is just, you know, the rights as Christians and rights as Americans are sometimes different. And while we are citizens of heaven, true biblical Christians are not automatically endowed with special rights or privileges. Even as I was going through and looking at the global persecution of the church. Like everyone has the freedom to worship um, freely and express their religion. That's what they talked about. But that's not always necessarily true. While we try to place rights on every individual and give them human rights as we call them as a, as a not even a nation internationally, those aren't necessarily directly afforded to every person. And sometimes we assume wrongly that our rights that we have as Christians should be spread wherever we live, wherever we're at. We have them because we live in the United States. If we were somewhere else under persecution, it doesn't mean that we don't have direct access to God, but we don't necessarily have the same freedoms. And if 
they were, how would we explain all those believers living in other countries who are facing persecutions for their faith on a daily basis? See, Jesus offers every true believer eternal life in heaven, a purpose in following Jesus, true peace. And what that leads to is enmity with the world. You know what? The world isn't going to always like you because you're a believer. That's hard for us because we want to be liked. We don't go up to people and say, you know, yeah, I hate you or I don't like you. We probably would like to. Can you imagine if all the world was like Facebook? Oh, I don't like you. I'm going to unfriend you. You know, oh, oh, I like that. That was really good. You know, oh, nice cat. You know, pretty. You know, you go around. Can you imagine how offensive that would all be if, we, if people responded that way personally to everyone? But you're going to face persecution for your biblical faith, discomfort in our present world, and many promises including. But one of the things is, as a believer, you're going to receive promises. And one of the greatest promises to be absent in the body is what? Present with the Lord. And that's an important because as we think about the persecuted church, and even in closing here, we think about the persecuted Christian globally. We must remember to pray for them. As I was thinking about going through the persecuted Christians, I was thinking about our missionaries in Nigeria. And Sanford, don't answer, but what is, what is their names? The who? The Babalolas. What's, what's his first name? Shay and his wife? Abigail, good. Do you know their kids' names? What? Barnabas and... Christabel, good. It means that you're reading and knowing those. And that's important because as I communicated, I sent off an email. It's nice that we can send out an email. I sent an email to Shay. said, hey, we're going to pray for you and just thankful, thank you for serving God. And he was like, you know, that's such an encouragement. Thank you so much because of, you know, they're facing some persecutions, especially in the northern area from the Muslims. And so as we think about them, go to the next slide because uh, you're a little late on those, so keep going. Pray for these persecuted Christians because, first of all, we pray that um, they would recognize God's presence. So sometimes what can we do? How can we help those in other countries? How can we help them who are going through difficult things, risk of their life? First of all, that they would recognize God's presence. They would remember others are praying for them. That's an encouragement even here living in the U.S. You know, knowing if you're going through a difficult time that others are praying for you. That they would receive God's comfort and protection that they would realize God's opportunities for evangelism. Did you know sometimes when you go through trials, when you go through difficulties, you're given an opportunity for evangelism in how you respond. Uh, that you would realize, receive God's boldness to share their faith. It does require boldness to share your faith. Receive strength to live boldly and also lead to spiritual maturity. Remain joyful amidst suffering. You know, not a superficial joyfulness, like, oh, I love this, you know, grit our teeth. But to understand that you're suffering for a purpose. And then also that they are rooted in God's word. Because it isn't just suffering. There's a lot of people who might suffer, become a martyr for the sake of some idealistic uh, belief. But to understand, would you be willing to give your life because of the value that you have in Jesus Christ? The hard part is sometimes I think we don't know unless we are facing those circumstances. You know, there's shootings in church. There's things that go on. And would we have the fortitude? Would we have the strength? 
And how would we respond if we didn't? Because imagine if you were placed in that situation and you failed. But we have the lesson of Peter. Because Peter experienced the same thing. But guess what? He was given another opportunity and he gave it his all. He didn't even think, historically we look at, you know, not being worthy to suffer like Christ, so they crucify him upside down. But each one of those disciples, they turned and became martyrs for their faith. And it wasn't, these were the ones who after Jesus was crucified, they all hid. You know, you don't want to get in trouble with the Roman officials. Who took Jesus' body? I didn't take it. You know, it's kind of like all those ones who are those little kids who don't know. And uh, what happens is, um, you know, in the Sunday school class, you know, they're, they're asking, you know, where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And, and, you know, the boys who are always getting in trouble, they run to his, the one runs to his brother and says, look out, you know, they're looking for Jesus. And I, I didn't take him, you know. And so they think they're getting in trouble. But to understand that, guess what? You have the opportunity to serve Christ in the capacity that you're given. Where you're at, within your sphere of influence, you have the opportunity but in the meantime, in the freedoms that you have, pray for the persecuted Christians. And then the next slide, the Babylonians who are serving in Oyo, Nigeria. Remember those individuals who are facing a difficult time. Remember others who, as we even mentioned, you know, we're going to be uh, also, as we think about our missionaries, the taking on different ones. You know, let them go. We don't want to go there. But each of you are going to be faced with difficulties that may not be at risk at life, but there are those who are suffering at risk of their lives. And we need to pray for them and watch over them.